Welcome to a special edition of the Development Podcast from the World Bank Group. I'm Ntombi Siwane. In the next five episodes, we will be recapping the World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. This year's discussions took place as the world tackled overlapping crisis and conflicts. And the focus was on the actions countries can take to manage uncertainty and build resilience. In today's show, the global digital revolution, opportunities and hurdles. Where is my data? Is my data safe? Where is my money? Is my money safe? If I have it under the mattress, I can see it, I can feel it. If it's somewhere in an app, I'm not quite sure. The inside view from Rwanda. On our continent, a major challenge continues to be the insufficient reach of fiber optic cables in rural areas. This means that uh, the majority of Africa's population does not have access to high-speed internet. The tech transforming commerce and the challenges still ahead in connecting the world. Most of these tabletop entrepreneurs, most of these small-scale entrepreneurs are women and they have been largely excluded from this digital economy. But this is one way of including them. All that and more over the next 25 minutes. For many of us, it's hard to imagine life without access to the internet in the palms of our hands, thanks to smartphones, and hard to fathom the last two years of the COVID-19 pandemic without digital tools and connectivity. A digital world meant business and education could, in some shape or form, continue as we physically ground to a halt. Governments could provide services, financial technology leapt on at a lightning pace, and of course, we could connect with our loved ones. Digital innovation is driving economic transformation, access to finance and job creation. But despite all this, nearly half of the global population is still unconnected. And at the same time as developing and deepening our relationship with digital technologies, we need to mitigate risks, data privacy and cybersecurity, to name but two. Let's start by hearing about Rwanda's own digital journey. We join the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, in conversation with World Bank Group President David Malpas. Over the years, Africa's digital transformation has been driven in particular by mobile financial services. Africa is in many ways a global pioneer in this sector. 80% of Africa's population has a mobile phone, but not everyone has access to high-speed internet on a smartphone. Yet, broadband is the key to unlocking digital transformation. On our continent, a major challenge continues to be the insufficient reach of fiber optic cables in rural areas. So if we address, this means that uh, the majority of Africa's population does not have access to high-speed internet. And therefore, these are key areas to focus on in, in dealing with the matter. In Rwanda, we have made a significant investment in the broadband infrastructure we have been able to reach over 95% broadband coverage. If you look at uh, our country, 
health sector, for example, most of the facilities in Rwanda are connected to the internet. Just to give that example. I should that add that therefore uh, our partnership with the World Bank has helped us to tackle digital barriers. And I wanted to take this opportunity to uh, appreciate uh, you, President Marpas, and the World Bank for having been of great help in this. Thank you very much for that. We want to push forward with that in uh, your neighbors uh, and, and in uh, Africa as a whole. I was very interested, as you described, the financial transactions and the payment systems as being the backbone. We find uh, in, in many countries that uh, people are eager to use and to make digital transactions. It's a way of having a very inexpensive uh, form of services, payment for services and for goods. Can I drill down on that a little bit? The uh, Ru Rwandan franc um, is, uh, is unique to Rwanda. So how do you envision the, the importance of cross-border payments. If someone drives a truck across a border, they're not able to use the same digital payment system. Do you think that will evolve? And is it important that there be a single currency or how will that evolve, do you think? There has been effort across the region during the integration process of a region. For example, if you take the East African community, uh, there has been harmonization of uh, a number of things, including looking at, therefore, how that can be served to the point that uh, from one place to another, it's like moving uh, within a country in itself. So the East African community has more or less come closer together in the sense that it becomes one big country that brings the number of countries that are partner states uh, uh, together. So I, I think that is uh, well underway. It's being discussed. It's looking at uh, uh, how we can even have monetary union. Under that, therefore, different harmonization uh, activities and services will be undertaken to ease or, on the movement and therefore the currencies uh, and the payment within the payment system uh, as it is. I imagine that as there's more and more trade across borders uh, among the East African countries, that will also draw along the idea of, uh, of transactions that, can, that, are, that are accepted in the various countries. Mr. President, as you think about the, um, uh, the challenges within Rwanda, around the world, privacy is one of the issues that people consider. Uh, how do people store data safely? How do they avoid uh, uh, surveillance of their own data? I wonder your thoughts on that and also this challenge around the world of having uh, all information available to people. There are some countries that are, that are really closing the internet to certain flows of information. What do you think about those issues? Well, first of all, one has to be aware real of the risks involved with the, these new technologies. And therefore, people have to take steps to make sure that risks are mitigated, but at the same time, harness the productivity and efficiencies and all the values entailed in these new technologies. 
And therefore, people have to think about safety in, in all forms indeed. And um, being aware of the, of the risks, of course. Um, so within our own system, for example, in Rwanda, we officially launched recently in, in Kigali, the first center of the fourth industrial revolution in Africa, in partnership with the World Economic Forum. This helps us to have a full grasp of, of the issues and therefore maximize on the benefits and also minimize on the risks as, as well as in between allowing for the freedoms to do with the, the management of data and uh, allowing people uh, to freely uh, reap benefits from that. So it, it's really, I think it will be built on how people come together to discuss this, put necessary laws in place, not only just nationally, but rather regionally, and also uh, learning from the best practices uh, uh, across the globe. Uh, it's not uh, an easy thing, but I think it is doable. I, I, let me give example. Last year, Rwanda adopted a personal data protection and privacy law, and the center played an instrumental role in its development. So there are these laws that are being uh, developed to make sure that uh, data protection is of essence and uh, it will also allow fostering of uh, trust, which will in turn promote innovation and facilitate cross-border data flows. So my sense is there, there are now so many services being provided across the internet that it pays for the investments that countries are making. So we find that regulatory advances are one of the one of the critical enabling steps for countries as they as they consider the internet. But I think some of the mo biggest advances can be uh, in physical trade across borders and then uh, digital trade across borders and payment systems. Uh, can, yes. can you describe? the the you, the physical trade that's going on and whether digitalization is going to help it advance i think there is uh, no conflict really between the physical aspects of that trade and the digital aspects but rather there is complementarity and the more we digitize these processes we find uh, that things work more efficiently. For example, in some parts of our borders with our neighbors, we have uh, created really one clearing house where officials on one side of the border and on the other side, the opposite side, are in one place. Whatever information that is required is delivered on spot and uh, people move with ease and people and businesses and services move very fast. So it's not either or, but rather for me, it's how the two can interact and work together as fast as possible. We are not going to have purely one process and pure or purely the other. It's, it's how we can fuse, uh, bring together the two and uh, be able to move on. I, I think we are beginning to see uh, development in this area and, and good progress. That was the President of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, with World Bank Group President David Malpas 
You are listening to the development podcast from the World Bank Group with a special edition on the spring meetings. I'm Dombi Suwad. Namaste, I'm Shilpa in New Delhi. Hola, I'm Samir in Suva, Fiji. Fofo, I'm Muslim Sidi Mohammed in Niamey, Niger. I am Mampumza Esta in Uganda. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. World Bank Group IMF Spring Meetings. The World Bank Group IMF Spring Meeting. So we've heard a bit about the bigger picture, how government can design new digital strategies. But given our globe's stark digital divide, how can we address the chasm of connectivity, unfurl opportunities for small firms, for more women, and of course, for those living in rural areas? Well, let's join a conversation moderated by Lana Wong with Omobola Johnson and Michael Mirbeck. Dr. Johnson is the former Minister of Information, Communication and Technology of Nigeria, a current member of the Alliance for Affordable Internet and a private equity investor. Mr. Mirbeck is the CEO of MasterCard. Nigeria has made tremendous progress in terms of um, expanding connectivity. Uh, today, 2G coverage is 90%, 3G coverage is 80% of the country, and 4G is 70%. The gaps, whether it's 10%, 20%, or 30%, those gaps are in the rural areas. Uh, and that's where the challenge is, to really get those rural areas connected. But I think what I would like to say is borrow from a term that the Alliance for Affordable Internet uses, and that is a term that is called meaning, meaningful connectivity. And that's what we need to be worrying about, not just uh, connecting the rural areas, but ensuring that that connectivity is meaningful. And that means a fast connection, at least four gigabytes sort of uh, um, 4G sort of speed. It means ownership of devices. It means having daily access to the internet for work, for business, for social, for communication. And finally, it means that you have enough data and you can afford that data. What regulations can we put in place in Nigeria to ensure that everybody has meaningful connectivity? I think there are a number of them. And some of them really, to be, uh, to be fair to, the, to Nigeria, we are actually doing some of those things already. Firstly, faster connection encouraging uh, collaborations between the community networks and the national networks, where the community networks have built towers based on subsidies given by the Universal Service Provision Fund. And the national networks can expand their spectrum, expand their radius, expand their connectivity to those community networks and share revenues based on that. The second thing that we need to do is around smartphone ownership. And that is really, first of all, reducing the taxes because we import most of the phones that come into this country, reducing the taxes and the, and the duties that are placed on those uh, smartphones. And also actually supporting or encouraging the manufacturing of, lo- of devices locally, because that takes all the taxes, takes all the customs duties and really making those smartphones more affordable for the average Nigerian. I think the third thing that we need to do is affordability. And that speaks to the daily access of meaningful connectivity. If it's affordable, people can get on when they want, for as long as they want, and how the, how they want to. So making it more cost-effective, rollout uh, considerations, the right-of-way, all those kind of charges that are placed on, on telecoms companies to roll out the networks. And also things like data bundles are very important. Zero rating for some of the very important content that we have on the, on the, on the internet, and data bundles that allow you to actually provide those services cheaper. And finally, enough data, having enough spectrum that is affordable, uh, enough spectrum that will uh, enable us to 
uh, roll out the data requirements because literally as soon as the data is, is rolled out, it's all gobbled up. But having Spectrum available for the telecommunications company, but having it available at a cost that is not as, as exorbitant as it is now. We just completed our 5G auctions in Nigeria. We raised about, Nigeria raised about half a billion dollars. And I would put it to the government that if we just saved uh, a small fraction of those dollars, and instead of having Spectrum expensive, making sure that we reduce the cost of Spectrum, but then give the national um, um, communication companies rollout obligations for getting that Spectrum, making them, forcing them to roll out into those rural areas, as opposed to them doing it at their pace, at their time, by partnering with the community networks. That's great. Thank you. I think your point about a meaningful connectivity and also affordability is critical. So that also really brings us down to making it meaningful for the consumers. So let me turn to Michael on that topic. Um, Michael, how can the private sector help bring the innovation and expertise needed to support financial health and prosperity? We were clear um, as a private sector player that it starts with access to that digital economy. It actually starts with everything Omobola just said. You've got to have fundamental access to become online, but then building from there on, what is your access to the digital economy? It was actually here at the World Bank stage, you know, seven years ago that we took a leap of faith and we said, well, uh, with 5 billion people not being part of the digital economy, we have to do our part as a private sector player and we committed to put half a, half a billion people, 500 million people into the digital economy. Fast forwarding into COVID, that was just about the time at, uh, in 2020 that we had actually delivered against that goal. And building on what Omobola just said, government does its piece, but the private sector comes in and uses the infrastructure, uses the access, uses the spectrum that you just talked about to deliver financial services access and then start to build towards prosperity. How do we do that? What are some of the learnings? Um, some of the learnings are that, you know, across the private sector, you need partnerships. I'll give you an example to bring all of this to life. Let's go to Egypt. Uh, one of the largest industries in Egypt is the garment industry, employs one and a half million workers. The salaries have been given in brown bags. Today, they're coming on a digital wage account. A digital wage account leaves a data trail that allows you to get better access to credit which will you know, smoothen out purchases you want to do as a family, as an individual, as a small business, and then the virtual circle closes. This is in partnership with Levi's, with a local set of local banks in Egypt. That is a private sector government model at scale because the garment industry obviously matters in other countries as well, for example, Bangladesh. Now, we've doubled down. We took all of those learnings and we said, well, there's still over 2 billion people that are not in the formal financial system that are not in the digital economy. What else can we do? We doubled down, we, we upped the goal to 1 billion. So I hope to be back on your stage at some point in time and said, we achieved that as well and here are the learnings. But the private sector is critical. We cannot rely on grants. The private sector will look, does this make sense? Does it pull other players into the ecosystem, a telco? for example, to provide financial services into rural areas without commercial sustainability is not going to happen. The private sector will look for economies of scale to, to make it commercially sustainable. The private sector will drive for innovation, leverage technology and competition, and all of that is needed. And that's why I think we are playing a critical role. We want to be a role model. Fantastic. Well, no, that's why these partnerships, public, private, government, philanthropic, uh, they are critical. So thank you for that. Um, but let, that does bring us to jobs, job creation. So let's talk about job creation. We know it's not only unemployment that needs to be tackled, 
but underemployment, which disproportionately affects women. So how can we ensure that women and marginalized populations are included in this new digital economy? Omabola. Thanks, Lana. You know, I think, uh, first of all, to talk about the structure of, uh, of an emerging economy uh, that is going digital. If I give the example of Nigeria, which is um, a proxy for most African economies, where most of the jobs are created by small and medium, small and micro businesses. In Nigeria, for example, 40% of the GDP is contributed by small, small and medium scale businesses. 90% uh, of businesses are micro, small and, and medium, and 84% of jobs are in these small and medium scale businesses. So to unlock this sort of uh, job creation, um, whether it's women and men, and I'll speak about women, women in a minute, to unlock the capacity for job creation in any economy, any emerging economy, you've got to figure out how do I scale these micro and small businesses? These are businesses that are, this, there's tremendous fragmentation. As I said, in Nigeria, we have 20 million of them employing each employing less than 10 million people. They're fragmented, they're small, they are ignored because you know you just can't serve them because they just don't have the capacity for scale. And so being able to unlock you know, what is in those SMEs is important. And the way that we're seeing that, and I speak as a, a, a venture capital investor now, is around companies that are serving those small businesses. Uh, they're the companies that we call the B to small B, not B to B, but B to small B. And these are companies that are aggregating the demand of uh, small scale businesses and using technology to provide services to, 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 to meet that demand and allow them to scale and to grow. And to explain this better, to illustrate this point better, let me speak about Trigger, one of our portfolio companies. Trigger is a company in Nairobi that serves what we call tabletop entrepreneurs, small-scale retailers, the way that Africans shop for food. We don't go to you know, hypermarkets or the Tesco's or the Sainz's of this world. We shop in you know, small corner shops, tabletop entrepreneurs, people that put their wares by the roadside. This is how we shop. And Trigger is addressing, and these are all entrepreneurs, they're all small-scale entrepreneurs. Trigger has served over 130,000 of these uh, small-scale entrepreneurs. And how do they do that? They're able to deliver fresh produce and dry goods to those you know, 130,000 entrepreneurs across Kenya simply by them ordering or by a mobile, a mobile app. So they place their orders for bananas, for oil, whatever it is. The produce is delivered to them as opposed to them going to the market. Secondly, they pay. Of course, everybody knows about M-Pesa. So let's just say mobile money. They pay with mobile money. With those payments in mobile money and payment for the goods in mobile money and also selling the goods with mobile money, there is now uh, digital transparency. So there's transparency on their cash flows. We know how much they buy. We know how much they sell. Trigger is then able to offer working capital to these informal uh, retailers because they understand how their money how their money flows and they know that they can actually develop a credit score based on that based on the flow of capital flow of money in these in these businesses now the, the point about you know saying all this most of these tabletop entrepreneurs most of these retail small scale entrepreneurs are women and they have been largely excluded from this digital economy but this is one way of including them by allowing them to buy their produce online accept payments and make payments online and offer them much needed capital online as well to be able to scale and grow their businesses these are the ways it's really around private capital to michael's point private capital really providing capital to companies that are looking to serve these small-scale entrepreneurs where most of our jobs are created and most people work in, in Africa and Nigeria in particular. That's great. Thank you, Omabola. But let's turn to Michael now. Related to, uh, to all of that, I guess, you know, of course, COVID has shown us with increased urgency the need to tackle this digital divide. So what are some concrete, actionable ways the, to narrow that divide? And what do you think are the greatest threats that we need to address? The digital divide is a reality. So 
what do we do? What do we do to avoid that people who have, who are in the digital economy, who are the digital haves, have a whole set of better choices than the digital have-nots? I mean, that is just not how the world can work. Um, if everybody's in, that will be good for us. And then if not everybody in is in, that will not be good of us. No, we're a tech company and um, I believe in technology and I believe in technology being something good uh, that can actually help address some of these issues. We have digital tools that matter for everybody. For example, cybersecurity tools. How does the small business actually get online and can compete in that kind of a market? Yes, it's that one app. But how do you actually get online? How do you build a website? Once you're online, how do you find new customers? Um, how do you keep your business safe? This issue of the digital divide is so big, nobody can solve this by themselves. Government cannot, private sector cannot, NGOs cannot, but across the board, we can. The Egypt example that I gave uh, is one that cuts across the board and these public-private partnerships are important. There is a starting point of eyeing technology with some skepticism. Where is my data? Is my data safe? Where is my money? Is my money safe? If I have it under the mattress, I can see it, I can feel it. If it's somewhere in an app, I'm not quite sure. So we need to deal with this trust deficit. We need to really focus on creating digital trust. And this is done in a few ways, making sure that from a cybersecurity side, things are clear. There's a lot of technology to do that today, and it doesn't have to be cumbersome, biometrical, uh, biometrical uh, security. There's all sorts of things that can, then can be put to play. But I think that mindset of realizing that people are skeptical and you have to address it from the outset so that you can leverage technology because people trust it, I think it's important. So the digital haves are the people that can put their data, their own data to their own good to get better choices and better services. They will, you know, people will only do that if they know that their data is treated safely. Tech, ESG mindset, partnerships, and trust, if we pull that off, that's pretty concrete. It's not easy to do, but I think we have enough learning of being on this journey for the last 10 years that we can pull this off. And now is the golden moment with this race towards a more digital life. We should do it now. A fascinating discussion there on the role the private sector can play in bridging the digital divide with Omobola Johnson and Michael Meerbeck, moderated by Lana Wong. Thanks so much for listening to the special edition of the Development Podcast, recapping the key conversations from our spring meetings. Next time, we'll be exploring how to finance climate action and best help developing countries. It will be another great show, so please do join us then. I'm in Tombi Siwale, and the producer is Sarah Trina. See you then.